Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This with Junior Renee Bobrun. If you're a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you back to this ongoing conversation. If you're a returning listener, thank you, and I appreciate your continued patronage. It's much appreciated. Thank you guys for contacting me. Thank you guys for the emails. If anyone wants to contact me regarding this show, regarding business opportunities, uh, sponsorship inquiries, collaborations, interviews, etc., etc., anything, please feel free to email me at whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com. That's whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com. Our Instagram is whoseworldisthis21. 2021. So that's Whose World Is This 2021. That's our Instagram. Please feel free to follow and DM me if you have any information, anything you want to speak about concerning uh, this, these conversations or conversation topics that you may want to uh, want clarification on or things that you feel that you may want me to uh, elaborate on. Fine. Fine. Let's talk about it. Um, our Twitter is the name of this show. Twitter. So whose world is this with Junior Renee Brun? That's our Twitter. You'll know it's me because you'll see the logo of me and the elephant over there looking at each other in the uh, certified stare down, which the elephant won. Our Zell is Junior Bobrun at gmail.com. That's my first name and last name. J-U-N-Y-A-B-E-A-U-B-R-U-N at gmail.com. Our uh, cash app is dollar sign June Bow. That's dollar sign J-U-N-B-E-A-U. We also have a Venmo, which is J-U-N-B-E-A-U. So it's Venmo at June Bow. Cash app is dollar sign June Bow. As always, I'd like to thank the listeners who've been going on ChavezHouse.com to purchase their decorative notebooks, their journals, their... Um, uh, diaries, work, workout logbooks, dance logbooks. If you go to Amazon and you type in Chavez House Publishing, that's Chavez with an S, Chavez House Publishing, type that in the search box. And what comes up, if it's either written by Chavez House Publishing or Lenore Batista, um, it's a certified uh, creation from Chavez House Publishing. And you have over 100 offerings. Whether from 8 to 80 years old, you're going to find something you want. From grade school to grad school, and you're going to find something you want. Whether it's notebooks, whether it's journals, whether it's gratitude journals. But I'm, I'm actually using the gratitude journal right now. The gratitude journal, My Abundant Blessed Life. It's a daily book, daily log book that prompts you to speak about your quote of the day and what you're grateful for, etc. Great prompts. I highly recommend it to you guys. Um, I use it. You know, I'm a client. They're not only sponsoring the show, but they're, I'm also a client of their, uh, of their uh, works and their workshops when it comes to gratitude and, 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 and self-improvement, et cetera, et cetera. So I have their workout book. I have this. I have their uh, password log book. You know, because I lose passwords all the time, you know. But, um, yeah, I appreciate those. I, I'm, I have to get I have to bottle up and nail down my intro because there have been several listeners who've emailed me and said, June, you got to give the information. Actually, there's a couple of professional p- 
podcasters, professional broadcasters who've told me um, they appreciate the fact that I have so much information and they love, they actually, there are some podcasters now that have been listening to this and they've become fans or, or supporters and they've been giving me some very tight advice. As a matter of fact, from the beginning, from the outset, there have been some podcast listeners, podcast creators, some content creators that have been listening. And the first thing they told me was, June, I know you want to get right into your topic, but you got to give people a way to contact you. Get it out the way. Uh, nail it down. And I always forget to do that because I don't write a lot of notes. So a lot of the things I'm speaking about are fresh in my head. I may be walking around or milling around with this information in my head for a couple of days, two, three days. I think of a topic and I just go off. And oftentimes when you do a show like that, when you're doing something like that, you may forget that, oh, wait, I'm actually doing something for broadcast. I'm actually broadcasting this because I want this to be to feel as spontaneous as it is. I want it to feel like as if I have a topic I want to discuss and now I'm calling a friend. Right. And you call that friend and then you guys get into the conversation. That's what I like about this. So oftentimes when I have to do the emails and all the contact info and give our financial information, I don't want to say it throws me off, but it, it doesn't, but I need to do it. It doesn't throw me off, but it doesn't feel as if it's part of the conversational mode that I'm looking to create. But at the same time, this is what it is. This is something that I want to turn into an actual business. So because of that, people contacting me, inquiring, people donating, because it gets to show me the value, which is what we're going to be speaking about today, value. How are you valued? You as a human being, you as an individual, you as a whole person, how are you, how are you valued? So with that, I get to know how much this show is valued by numerical terms. How many people tune in? How many people purchase things that I've discussed or, or mentioned? How many people uh, uh, donate and how much they donate? Um, unfortunately, it's a metric because there are very few ways we use in our modern day society to measure whether something is valuable or not. We are now under a zeitgeist, a, a reality where how much you are willing to pay for something is what its value is. Very few things we measure by its intangible value or its pricelessness or having an, a value that cannot be quantified in dollars and cents. And that's what I want to speak about today. Even though this show, what we're doing here, it needs to have a certain value because time is the ultimate commodity. So what I give my time to, if I want to give my time to this, let's say, for instance, I want to do this full time. What does that mean? What does full time actually mean? Full time means that I'm giving my full professional time to this. The time that I would designate to working for a for, for, for monetary compensation, I would be dedicating to this. So if I wanted this to be full-time and what I do here, researching the show, producing the show, uh, editing, uh, creating different segments, then marketing the show, putting 
bits and pieces online and banners, all of that. If I would like to do that full time, how much should I be getting paid? What, what's the compensation? What's the metric? How much would it take financially for me to do this full time? That's a number I know. And I will get to see it based on the numbers that come in, based on how many marketing dollars I put out and how much of that has transforms into viewers, uh, exposure, leverage for me to negotiate, sponsorship, all of those things it comes down oftentimes to dollars and cents, right? But is that the only metric? Is, should that be the predominant metric? That's the world I live in because groceries aren't free. Rent and mortgages aren't free. Car notes, car insurance, gas isn't free. Cars aren't free. Uh, light, heat, internet, laptops, edit editing, software. None of these things are complimentary. They don't come with life. They don't come to you at birth complimentary. It's not the rolls that are on the table when you go to Texas Roadhouse, those buttery rolls. It's like, hey, here are some free rolls since you just walked in off the street. But those free rolls are, they're not free. They're on the table because you're going to sit and actually pay for something else. So technically, you can't just walk into Texas Roadhouse and go, hey, listen, can I get the buttered biscuits, please? Buttered rolls, thank you very much, and walk out. Can't do that. You're going to buy something. And this just is complimentary based on whether you're going to buy something and sit down and purchase a meal or not. Right? So technically, it's not free. Technically, most, most things aren't free that you need. Your food, clothing, shelter, etc. Lifestyle. <sighs> so the value. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's 2023, January. Happy New Year. You're still allowed to say Happy New Year until January 31st, I think. I don't know, maybe before Valentine's. I think that's my rule. Before Valentine's Day, I say Happy New Year. And then after that, you're in Easter season. I think by Valentine's Day, you're now in the springtime Easter season. You're well into the year, I think, right? I have friends of mine who, who are professionals who feel quite unvalued or devalued by the marketplace. These people are experienced in their profession. They're educated. They're motivated. They're good at what it is that they do. I consider them to be essential workers, by the way. One of them is in education. Well, a couple of them are in education. A couple of them are in uh, work in uh, other capacities that I consider essential as well. And they feel wholly devalued by how much they're being compensated and how much they're being treated. I have a friend of mine who's been working in the same profession as an educator. She was one of my educators when I was in a junior college before I moved on to St. John's. Um, and she was essential in my, in my success early on because I wasn't entirely sure. I was going back to school. I was already in the, I was already in the business world and I gave that up to go back to school. So I was a little nervous trepidation i knew i could do the work but i was still wondering if, was i making the right decisions going back to school and throwing and move taking what i considered almost a step back to take a step forward or maybe a step away and there's a lot of thoughts going through my head at the time and this particular educator put my mind at ease 
I soon became part of the Honor Society, 4.0 student, etc., etc. And many of us that were in the Honor Society uh, and Academic Honor Society, we would discuss this particular person and how just effective they were at their job. This particular educator, who's been at it for more than two decades or so, has now been told that they have to take a lesser uh, take a lesser salary and a diminished title after accruing such goodwill and expertise and accruing the level of 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 of, of success that this person has had teaching students being an educator being a tutor being able to help you know it, it has you feel away. It has you feel like, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? I put in what, what what a person does for eight, nine hours a day, their time. It becomes them. Don't let anyone out there tell you they are not their job. This is what I do. It's not who I am. I'm calling BS right there. What you do is who you are. It says a lot about you that you're even able to do it or not, your capacity, your propensities, your proclivities, it's you. What you're doing and what you decide to do for eight hours day in and day, it says a lot about the choices that you've made. It speaks to you. It's what I do, it's, it's what I do, it's not who I am. Huh? I would be very careful with that because there have been some jobs I disliked and then when I walked away, I still felt as if I, I put a lot into that because I, it's not dollars and cents, why? Because when I walk into a place, it's not just dollars and cents. Because I have to use my mind. I have to use my body. I have to use all of my tangibles as well as intangibles. My soft skills to get the job done. So it's a lot of me being used. You, They may look at me as just dollars and cents. But at the same time, you also want somebody trustworthy. That can't be quantified in dollars and cents, right? You want somebody with some ethics, and a morality and, a, and a, maybe a character, a strong character the, that you can't measure. You can't put that on a resume. That's not a that's not an artificial intelligence. The AI that controls HR now, the artificial intelligence that's sifting through the resume can't factor that in. You can have people with great credit scores, decent money in the bank, no foreclosures, no bankruptcies, no this, that and the third. And guess what? They can be very dishonest people. And the resume is saying, and the artificial intelligence is saying, based on this metric, this person is a high moral character and fiber, et cetera, et cetera, and could be dead wrong. There's certain things you can't measure. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I have another friend of mine, and as a matter of fact, a relative in mine in education, that is now down in the dumps because of how the Board of Education is treating them. So I had to ask this person, are you equating your net worth with your self-worth? Because every time we have a conversation about how they're underappreciating her, it's based on how much they're paying her. And I said, in this system that we're in, for a man or woman to become a millionaire or a billionaire, they have to underpay you. Your job is an expense. You are begrudgingly given salaries. 
Don't let these jobs fool you into thinking that they're job creators due to some sort of philanthropic humanitarian compulsion. That is not the case, ladies and gentlemen. You hire because you have to, not because you want to as a business person. I know that firsthand. There's a big difference between my for-profit and my non-profit. If I could do it myself and keep all the money, I would. But you know what? Time is of the essence. And I can't learn everything. Got to outsource this. Got to get someone to do that while I focus on this. I focus on my strengths. I'm going to pay you to focus on some of my weaknesses or some of the busy work. You do the busy stuff while I think of expansion. I need you to maintain this while I go grow this. Okay, you plant these flowers here. I'm sorry. You water these plants and talk to these plants while I go purchase more land and do the negotiation and the deals so I can have more plants. And then I'll hire more people to water the plants, feed them, plant them and talk to them. Right. That's how it works. So I had to speak to this relative and say, listen, separate your net worth from your self-worth. They are not synonymous. She said, for some reason, that worked. I told her that months ago, maybe mid last year. She said, separate it. You're never going to get paid what you're worth. You can only pay yourself what you're worth. You, no one's going to pay you your worth. LeBron James, as far as I'm concerned, is underpaid. That sounds crazy, right? $45 million a year to play for the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers would be nothing without him. The NBA, whatever, whatever. All the, all the money that person generates, he's still underpaid. You're not getting paid what you're worth based on your value. The reason why I say that is because there are a lot of people. Have you ever heard the statistic that for every 1% that unemployment rises nationally, there is a 1.6% increase in suicides? People will lose their job and lose their reason for living at the same time. I would really like to be a part of changing that. We put so much in what it is that we do. And oftentimes, the people in America, in the United States, I'm speaking to everyone across the planet right now that can relate to one degree or another. But people in the United States, oftentimes, when they commit suicide off of, off of losing their job, it's not because they're not going to eat. It's not because they're going to starve. It's because they were reduced to dollars and cents and not mind and body. They were reduced to dollars and cents and they gave everything to the job. Think about how often you think about the job that you do. When you get home from work, what do you do? You relax for a couple of hours. You get home at five, six o'clock in the afternoon. What happens? You have what, two, three hours to relax. If you work in eight to five or eight to six, say when I, you know, you know, when I was, when I lived in New York, then I have to, co uh, to commute from Queens to Manhattan, which is a two-fare zone. I'm born and raised in Queens. Now I'm of age. I have to get on a bus and then a train. That's an hour and a half. Commute. That's not including the walk that it takes for me to get to the bus stop in my neighborhood, which is about a four to five block walk. So I have to walk to the bus stop, wait for the bus, get on the bus, then get off of the bus, get down, get on the train, go to work. So how long am I thinking about work even before I get to work? If work is at 8 a.m. I'm not thinking about work at 8 a.m. You're thinking about work since 6 a.m. 6.30 a.m. 6 a.m. I'm up. So which means that the night before I'm saying I got 
I, I have to get to sleep early because I need to get up at six to get ready for work. So I'm thinking about work all day. Do you understand? All day. It's not for the eight hours that I'm there that I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about work when I get home from work, what time I'm looking at the time while I'm watching a movie or if I decide to go to the go to the gym after work and decide to have some semblance of a social life for about an hour and a half before I get back before I get into the bed, try to get a solid 7 plus hours of sleep so I can do it again tomorrow at 6 a.m. You give so much to a job. You give so much to labor. That if you lose your job, you lose a piece of your identity. I get it. I understand. Because while the bean counters and the people in accounting and HR are looking at you and saying, oh, well, such and such, uh, June is making such and such amount this year. Um, and he's going to probably, you know, want the cost of living increase or, you know, he's, he's up for this. And based on our numbers, it's looking like we can possibly get someone fresh out of college to do his job for about 30% less than he's getting annually. And you become a matter of dollars and cents. Forget about the work that you've put in. Forget about how you've trained other people. Forget about how you add positively to the culture conducive to productivity and pro profitability. Forget about that. Forget about the mind, the body, the hard skills, the soft skills, the tangibles and the intangibles, the expertise, the certifications, how they've, the integrity, the transparency, the competency, uh, the above average to excellent work. Dollars and cents, baby. And they'll tell you, hey, sorry, it's been great. But um, you can either take this lesser role at lesser money, forget about the fact that you've worked 5, 10, 15, 20 years to get to the point where you are now by keeping your head down and just doing the work, keeping your eyes and ears open for opportunities, showing that you're ambitious, all of these things. You have to use a lot of who you are, sacrificing, coming in when you were sick, not taking certain vacation days, coming in early, working late, et cetera, et cetera, with no promise of any equity or ownership opportunities. All of that for a paycheck. And then they decide it's been great, got to let you go, tough, tough. Um, and a security guard is now escorting you out of the building. When you haven't taken as much as a paperclip without permission, now a security guard is saying, yeah, we, yeah, we, HR is telling, we've already cleared out your desk. And they give you everything in a cardboard box. And we'd like your ID card, please. Here are your exit papers. Handshake. Please feel free to use us as a recommendation. We'd love, and, 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 and good luck in your future endeavors. And they'll tell you that on a Friday night, after they got a full week of work out of you, they'll tell you Friday evening that there's no, there's no way for you to go on Monday. Sorry, enjoy your weekend. Enjoy, yeah, you get some medical benefits through COBRA for the next two, three, four weeks. Good luck. Enjoy yourself. Bye. Yeah, we know about your sick mom and we know about the things that you have in your personal life. Yeah, that's great. Good luck with all of that. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Next.
treated like dollars and cents and not mind and body. I want people to understand your net worth and your self-worth are not synonymous, no matter what this market. And when I say market, there's an ownership class that exists. I don't care how rich you are in this country. I have people who listen to the show who have to take the bus to work. I have people who listen to the show who take Porsches to work. Laborers, lawyers, doctors, financiers, listen. There's successful people, people who are on their way up, people who are retired, people who are successful. Everyone listens. None of them represent the ownership class. Some of them live in beautiful, beautiful homes. If they were to post their homes on Instagram, you'd be like, whoa, June, you were where? Yeah, they're not part of the ownership class. They're not part of the class that creates the number system by which we, are, we all seem beholden to. The price of a car, the price of milk, the pri- your salary, and how much is commensurate to your education, and the devaluing of your college degree, and the, 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 the over-exaggerated price of an education. I'm talking about that class. They may listen, but I don't have any friends in that class. Maybe some of them listen. But that market that artificially manipulates and puts many of you in a position where you have to figure out how to separate your self-worth from your net worth. I'll give you an example personally. Me. After the uh, government shutdowns and the just the egregious errors made by the United States government and multiple governments across the world to shut down the country, to shut down their countries, shut down supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Many, many people out of work, many professionals. So me, I worked, I was a hybrid. I always have my own sort of businesses and then I'll employ myself out to, you know, uh, certain employers, but I'll always have my own consulting and things going on. And I'd make a decent penny once I put my mind to it. I've been always the kind of person where I come up with some ideas and then I say, oh, man, this worked great for like two years. And then you know what I do with that money? I go on vacation. And my idea of a vacation is a year in Waikiki. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't follow these two-week rules. I don't, I don't know who made this stuff up. But anyway, um, that was me. I can come up with an idea, mustard seed of an idea, figure it out, and all of a sudden it becomes profitable and move on. Okay, great. I made some money. Let me just put that away, a little bit of this away, and and just travel a bit and see some things. The shutdown made that impossible because everyone who could do what I do, there were so many of us out there that when I started looking online at different job sites and speaking to friends of mine who worked in certain industries, What I used to get paid, they were now paying a third of that. They slashed what I used to get paid by 40% sometimes. And every time I would look at a listing, I just started to feel, I would notice my mood would get lower and lower and lower. And this happened for more than a year, people, where I took a job working with a company as an independent contractor in the year 2021 where I was making, I don't remember the last time I took a salary that low and it was a punch to the gut. It was a punch to the ego and it was an insult, but I needed to make sure that I was keeping my, my life afloat. So I took this gig 
And every day I, I went to this gig, this job, I felt devalued, undervalued. I felt as if all the things that I worked for in my life, the sacrifices, all of my accomplishments, my sacrifices, everything was for naught. Because this job was not a job for someone in my position. So I thought. I started to equate my net worth with my self-worth. And I had to stop that. I had to say, wait a minute, this is an opportunity. It's not the best opportunity, but there is an opportunity here. It's almost as if I'm one of those gold rushers, right? One of those homesteaders going out west and I'm sitting there by the, by the mouth of a, of a lake or a babbling brook and I got a little steel pan with a bunch of dirt and rocks in it and I'm looking for a little piece of gold. That's what that job felt like. They were paying me a paltry sum week in and week out. It was an insult. Every hour of work, every minute of work was an absolute insult. To see my resume, to see what I bring to the table, to go on several interviews, and this is the salary I was getting. My mood, I felt it. I looked in the mirror and I was like, I don't deserve this. I worked too hard to get here, just to end up here. I eventually, you know, forced my way out of that situation. I had to. Because I, I, this, this is not a reflection of me. Remember, those who say, this is not who I am, it's what I do. Uh-uh. I had to make a choice. I had to have a couple of lean months. So I was like, no, this is not going to work. This, this isn't going to work. And at the same time, I started this conversation that we're having now. This Whose World Is This podcast. I started this because I said, this is who I am. And this is what I do. I have to have a representation of who I am and what it is that I do in this world. Why can't this be the way I make money? Because that other way, they don't want to pay me to do that. I got to find a way to get paid to do this. Your net worth and your self-worth are two different things. I have friends of mine right now who are feeling as if they are underappreciated and undervalued at their job. Guess what? You were underappreciated and undervalued when you interviewed, when you shook hands and when you agreed to that salary, when you agreed to those cost of living increases, when you agreed to those pay bumps and those raises, you were undervalued and underappreciated then. You only make sense as far as the dollars to the ownership class. You have to find a way to utilize your mind and body and spirit in other things. And not only the endeavor that pays your food, clothing, your shelter, your, your necessities, but then involving yourself. And how do I expand past this ownership's class metric of my value? A lot of this stuff is going to sound ab abstract and obtuse right now. but I mean abstract, but I'm going to whittle it down. In 1870, there was a Massachusetts labor activist who was fighting for the eight-hour workday. And this person said that the true prosperity and abiding good of the Commonwealth can only be learned by placing money on one scale and humanity on another. Did you hear that? True, pros true prosperity and good for the Commonwealth can only be learned by placing money 
on one scale and humanity on another. We can only learn what the true prosperity of our society is by putting money on one scale and humanity on another. You can't have human beings and money being measured the same. That's where we are right now in the United States of America and in many, many parts of the world. We're using only your value by which you can add to the marketplace monetarily. That's your value. What you add monetarily. So like in a rural village, the rural elder who is the keeper of all the protocols and procedures and stories of how to keep that culture and propagate that culture for generations to come, that person has value. They don't work in the, in the traditional sense of the word. They can't hunt anymore, right? They can't fight and protect the borders of their village anymore. But you know what they do? They are the keepers of a tradition that can be passed down for generations. That's their value. That's their value. Can you quantify it? Possibly. But is, but is it quantifiable in that culture? No, it's priceless. Their mind and spirit is more important than what their body can do. What they can do. What they can, uh, how much money they can, how many berries can you pick in an hour? Huh? How many warthogs can you, can you, can you hunt in, in a day? Hmm? How, many, how many pieces of cotton, how many bales of cotton can you get on your back before the end of the workday? No. True prosperity and abiding good of the commonwealth can only be learned by placing money on one scale and humanity on another. Reason why I bring this up is because Earl Nightingale, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. I mean, you probably have. But if you don't know Earl Nightingale, he's had several books, inspirational books, self-help books. I would put him in the same category as Bob Proctor or Dale Carnegie or um, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, things like that. And Earl Nightingale, I've, you know, years ago, I would read his writings and listen to his sayings and they all made a lot of sense to me many of them did except one one that i push back on all the time and i'm and, and earl nightingale i appreciate him you know um um but this one quote i didn't i didn't agree with and i don't think it fits especially in our society and that quote was we will receive not what we idly wish for but what we justly earn i understand that yes i agree with that we're not going to get what we wish for. We're, we're going to get what we earn. So we think of something and then we have to go from thought to word to deed. You wish it. You want it to happen. Now you have to put in the work. Plan now and do the work. So you're only going to get what you earn, not what you wish for. But it starts with the wish. So I'll say that. It starts with the wish. It starts with the thought, the wishful thinking. This is what I want. This is what I would like to be. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a teacher. I want to own my own business. It starts with that. It starts with the wish. It starts with the manifest manifestation of that wishful thinking. So that first sentence I agree with. It's this sentence that I have a problem with. The sentence starts, our rewards will always be in exact proportion 
to our service. Our rewards will always be in exact proportion to our service. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Your rewards will not be in exact proportion to your service. The word rewards is a very interesting word. When we say rewards, when we do a job, when we do a thing, let's say a teacher. I'm going to use teaching, for example. It's one of the noblest professions on earth. A teacher can make or break a dream of a child or an adult. You understand me? It's not just the eight-year-old that's impressionable by a teacher's judgments, but it's the 18-year-old. It's the 28-year-old. It's the 38-year-old nervous. The 48-year-old going back to school going, I don't know, I want to get my education, I want to do this. And what if that teacher, while you're 48 years old, and that teacher says, you know what, I don't really think this is the right class for you or the right profession for you. I just think you're already nervous. You're an adult. You may be a parent. At 48, 50 years old, you could probably be a grandparent. And you're going back to school. Maybe you want to get more certifications. Maybe it's something you've always wanted to do, complete your education, whatever the case may be. Maybe you feel undereducated in the job that you're in. And to compete, you may have to get, you know, a continuing education. And your teacher at 48 years old says, I don't know if you cut out for this. It's going to hurt. I've known adults who have dropped out of school knowing how important it is. You may not know how important school is at eight or even 18. Maybe you don't want to go to college at 18. Maybe you want to be a concert promoter. Maybe you want to intern somewhere. You want to work and, you know, be a server. And just like, I just want, I just want free time. I want to work a little. Maybe you don't want to go to school. Maybe you don't, you, don't, you don't see the advantages as much as everyone else. That's fine. But at 38, 48 years old, you may have a different take on it. And I've known adults who have gotten out of school and have dropped out of classes as adults with kids to feed because of what the teacher said. Because of the teacher's. They couldn't bypass that and go, you know what, to hell with what the teacher thinks. I got to do this. I'm going to finish this. I can do it. And I need to do this because I can get the pay bump. I can get opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Grownups, adults. So imagine when an eight-year-old hears this, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, a teacher can make or break a dream. And I've had same people say, listen, I got a great grade in my class. My teacher loves me. I love my teacher. They're very supportive of my schedule. They understand I'm loving it, et cetera, et cetera. They've also had that experience. A teacher can make or break a dream. Is a teacher being rewarded in exact proportion to their service? And what is this reward? Is it financial? Because they feel a great sense of fulfillment with the job that they do. I've taught. <laughs> I was in front of a classroom and there were 25, 20 to 30 kids under 18 looking at me and I had to lead a full classroom. It is the most engaging, most challenging, most pressure filled experience I've ever had professionally. It took all of me to try to engage with every single last student in that classroom for about an hour. I got 60 minutes, whether this kid ate or not, whether this kid's medication uh, it, it has him or her balanced or not, whether this one is angry at that one, whether this one's parents abused or didn't abuse. 
you're dealing with every single last piece. Think about 30 different energy entities in the room looking at you. And you have to find a way while you're teaching a lesson to connect with each and every one of them personally as well as collectively. Let me tell you something, people. When that bell rung, I felt as if I ran a marathon. That's how exhausting that experience was and exhilarating the, the sense of accomplishment was. And also how critical I was with, I didn't reach that kid in the back of the class. I didn't get that one. The class got a little disruptive. I, now I'm going through all the check marks of things I could have done better, what I did well and what I needed to improve on. It is one of the most, if not the most challenging experience I've ever had working. I loved every minute of it. There are two professions that I would, that I love. It's medical field and teaching. If I had to do everything over again, which I hate to say because I enjoy where I am now, I would be a doctor without borders. That, that would be the, 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 mo the most impact I think I can do to the world or I could give to the world is working in an underserved third world country and, and, and working for a clinic or, or creating a clinic and healing. And the second is teaching, teaching under 18-year-olds, teaching high school students or elementary school students and try to make dreams, not break dreams. Reason why I'm not a teacher is because the reward is not in exact proportion to its service in a world, in a world, in a paradigm that measures things in dollars and cents, I cannot be a protector, provider, head of household on those salaries. They are overworked and underappreciated for the amount of work it takes to stand in front of that classroom for eight hours. I was doing it for three hours. And I was like, whew, I went home, went straight to sleep. I didn't even take a shower. Sometimes I would just come home, take off the shirt, take off the tie, go right to bed at four or five o'clock. I couldn't do it. It was that exhausting, those two, three hours. Now imagine doing that for eight hours, 30 kids that don't belong to you, and then new kids come. You did that for an hour. You finally got the class to settle down, and guess what? Now they're gone, and you got to do that again with another group then that group is gone. You got to do that again with another group. The most underappreciated profession is the teacher in the United States. That profession does not receive the reward in exact proportion to their service. They are left exhausted. They are left with what I call the heartstring hustle. The closer your heart is to the thing, the more people want you to do it for the vocation aspect of it and not the, comp the compensatory aspect of it. It's nonsense. People want people to go into nursing and not strike. They want people to go into teaching and not strike for better pay, better working conditions. It's nonsense. I've, 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 I've noticed that on certain work-related work websites when certain nurses during the shutdown were striking and saying, we deserve better pay, better this. And other people in other professions were saying, well, you go into nursing not for the money. You go into nursing because you love it. Really? 
Yes. People go into nursing and teaching because they have a f- because they because it fits them and fits their proclivities and they feel a calling and a vocation. But does that mean at that point they have to sacrifice compensation due to the fact that they are fit personality wise for this particular profession? Now, all of a sudden, they give more than most and they're supposed to receive the least or the aggregate. If they're giving more than most people, shouldn't they receive more than most people? Bunch of pencil pushers with funny titles that don't really do things are were commenting on te- uh, uh, negatively about teachers striking for better conditions and nurses striking for better conditions. Who gives more day in and day out? But like I said, and I'm speaking to the nurses out there, the teachers out there, the law enforcement and people like that out there who've been on the front lines and who feel depressed, who feel underappreciated, who feel maligned, who feel marginalized, who feel defeated and depleted right now. You have to find a way to separate your net worth from your self-worth. You were never going to get what you were worth. Whatever a teacher's getting paid right now, add 50% to that. Then we can start having a conversation as to whether or not they're getting their their, uh, 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 net worth or or their worth. In, in, in congruence with their profession. Hmm? A teacher right now should be getting 50% more than what they're getting paid. They should get subsidized home loans, subsidized car loans. They should get something almost equivalent to a GI bill if they've been teaching more than five, 10 years where their home is sort of paid for. Maybe they work in a teacher's village of some sort where as long as you work in this village, you're paying maybe 50% less of what other people would pay for the same property. If you want to live someplace else, obviously you may, you may pay full price or, you know, you may get some discount, maybe a couple of hundred dollars off of your rent or whatever the case may be. But if you work in the teacher's village, then I feel the same way with law enforcement, law enforcement in New York city, they were constantly moving to New Jersey because a New York cop couldn't afford to be a, a New York resident. That's absurd. The people who were protecting the streets of New York City couldn't afford to be New Yorkers. It was absurd to me. I remember hearing that going, are you kidding me? You're telling me the city? I naively thought, wait, they must be subsidized housing for New York, for New York NYPD. Apartments, maybe mortgages, interest rates slash from 6% to 3 or maybe, you know, every law enforcement officer that's been on the job five to eight years qualifies for a mortgage that's about 2% of the... Yeah, yeah. we need New York, New York police to live in New York City. You should live in the city that you're patrolling. You can't live way out in New Jersey somewhere, Pennsylvania, and drive into New York City to patrol. Are you kidding me? And further create the distance between you and the citizenry of the city that you that you that you're policing. What are we talking about? Net worth, self-worth. You're not going to get what's an exact proportion to your service. You're not going to get that. I'm talking to you guys out there. You're not going to get it. I did. I knew I was getting underpaid, but at the same time, I was like, OK, I, uh, my profession, I was able to move around and do some things. But when I saw what happened after the shutdown, because there were so many of us out there. That the supply overran the demand that the, 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 the ownership class was able to take what I was making per hour or per day or my fee and slash it by a third. That invisible market. You know. 
the invisible hand in the market, right? And I started to feel as if my net worth was connected to my self-worth. Instead of me looking at it as a dollars and cents thing, which I knew it was, I knew what was going on. There's a lot of us out there, a lot of us out there who can do what it is that I do. So now, now we're, now the boss man is saying, oh, I can get them for cheap. I can get these guys for cheap because they got to eat. Hungry dog, obedient dog, right? I can get these hungry dogs to work for way less because they need the bread because there's so many of them out there out of work and very and maybe the the prospects are are not as uh <clears throat> you know the prospects aren't there aren't as a uh, 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 substantive right and so i started to feel like man yo my fiance was like june everything all right i'm like yeah i'm all right every time i would look at postings and emails and do resumes and I, and then all of a sudden i'm getting these great interviews i'm talking about the interviews for some of the consulting jobs i was getting i mean there are four people on a zoom call asking me a whole host of questions and i'm rock starring it let me tell you something people in a resume in an interview i'm like a ted talk the boss man knows i can do his job or her job they know that this is not me being arrogant this is me being told this that you interviewed better than the such and such who's the VP of such and such. The VP of such and such said, you, this was the greatest, this was one of the best interviews. Went to the point where I did an interview that was so good a couple of years ago that the person took me out to lunch. Said, I'd like to talk to you, pick your brain about what you think. I didn't get the job yet. How, how, that's how I interview well. I'm very relaxed. I'm very much myself. I don't have any canned answers. I don't follow any of the rules of the interview world of, oh, you got to let them know. Mm. <clears throat> I've come into my own space where I'm very comfortable asking for money up for, like, hey, how much is it? And after all of these interviews, credit this, checking this, checking that, several other interviews, we want you to meet, yo, you, we, we've, yo, you, you're you're higher up now. You're, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna go on the the interview B now, interview C, blah blah blah, all of that nonsense, to find out that the salary was foolery. Right now, I have a friend of mine who lives in, not the South, not not uh, I would say maybe outside of New York, in the South, but not I would say maybe in the. I don't, I don't, I don't want to give it away. But anyway, they don't live in Florida. They don't live in New York, which is where most of my friends and family live. And this person now, the job title that they have after 20 years, they have been reduced now to making the same amount as a starting salary at someone working at a fast food drive through window with very limited education, maybe a GED or a high school diploma to work at a fast food drive-thru. And I have zero, I have nothing but respect for people who get up and work every day. So this is with all due respect to people who work at this window. I'm speaking about someone who's been in a career for about 12 to 15 years and has more than a bachelor's degree, less than a master's, but more than a bachelor's, a bachelor's plus continuing education and certifications. They want to reduce this person's role to that of someone working at a drive through window at your local fast food restaurant. This person that I know is crushed right now at the moment. 
January, mid-January 2023. They're crushed. They cannot believe or understand that this is actually occurring. I'm afraid for them. I'm concerned. Because this person has intertwined their net worth so much with their self-worth that they see this as the ultimate betrayal. It's hurting them like a cheating spouse. I think this hurts them more than a cheating spouse. That's how hard they're taking this. I think about this person all the time. I go, I don't know what to say. I, 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 have, I don't know the password. I don't know what to say to unlock them and to extricate them from that idea that this is, this is the antagonistic relationship between ownership and labor. This is what it is. They know that, but it's easy to say that in the academic sense. But when it's happening to you, you're like, my God. So a lot of what I'm saying today is I want everybody to listen to what I'm saying in its entirety. It's all going to tie in. I know it's long winded, but it's all going to tie in. That's why I give you guys examples that maybe you can relate to outside of me speaking in the abstract. This person, I can't get them out of this funk. And they're not married. They don't have any kids. And they're trying to figure out reasons why they should continue, you know, just living this way. And they have some money in savings. I've suggested to them that they do some volunteer work. Maybe, maybe take a trip somewhere and do some volunteer work when you land. Let me tell you something. It's, it's a great elixir for what ails you. You go to a place and you not only enjoy the touristy sights and sounds and smells and tastes, but then you also give back in that same place. Maybe for an hour, maybe for three hours, maybe for a day. Who knows? But I guarantee you. So I'm, I'm looking to have them maybe just take themselves away from what exactly is going on now. Separate them proximally from it. Go someplace else. Because right now they can't take that self-worth away from their net worth. In a true prosperity in true prosperity and abiding good for the commonwealth can only be learned by placing money on one scale and humanity on another scale. I'm looking for them to take their humanity someplace else and separate it from the money. You are not how much you make. You are what you do, but you are not your salary. You are not your salary. You're not your salary. And oftentimes we think of ourselves as our salaries. That's why you have Wall Street. Let the market crash and someone's going to jump out of a window. There's going to be some hedge funder that's going to lose a billion dollars in a day and is going to be worth still 20 million and is going to jump out of a window or is going to say, I'm ruined. You're not ruined. You're not ruined. You're not ruined. You, you weren't given a death sentence. A doctor didn't come in with a clipboard and say, get your affairs in order. Nothing, nothing we can do. It's not what just occurred. Your net worth and your self-worth, separate them. One scale for, for your humanity, one scale for who you are monetarily. You're not going to get what you're worth if someone is paying you to do something. It's not going to happen. Karl Marx once said something in the Communist Manifesto. Uh-oh, June is quoting Karl Marx. Yes, I do. 
If anyone wants to know anything about economics and you haven't read Adam Smith, you haven't read Ricardo, you haven't read Karl Marx, you haven't read Das Kapital or Communist Manifesto or, or Anarchy of the State, Mikhail Bakun, then we can't have a true conversation about economics. You're just a casual. It's like if we can't talk NBA if all you know is the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry. Right. You know, we can't talk football if all you know is Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. You're a casual. You think you know football because you listen to a couple of talking heads and you parrot what they say. And then you think you can come and have a conversation. You can't. It's the same with economics. We live in a capitalistic country, but nobody in this country really knows entrepreneurialism and how to start a business. They don't teach you that. You get a degree in being a busy bee. That's what you get a degree in. So you don't become part of that ownership class where you may be able to change the way these metrics and these and how we are measuring each other and valuating each other. Whoa. It's not by accident. I'm going to get back to what I was going to say about Karl Marx, but it's not by accident that many of these Silicon Valley creators of this new normal that were in social media technology, et cetera, et cetera, computer programmers, coders, creators of computers and, 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 and apps that we all take advantage of. It's not by accident that these men and women, millionaires, millionaires who get paid by how many times we stay on their sites and not create our own sites, who stay clicking on what it is that other people are doing and not doing for ourselves. It's not by accident that their kids don't get smartphones until they're well into their teens. It's not by accident that their kids are going to schools that are $30,000 a year to be low tech, which means no Wi-Fi, no tablets, chalk, pencils, and paper. Some of these schools have no grades. There are no tests. And those kids are going to be the ones that are going to be handed the reins to this universe and this paradigm that we're in that undervalues you while your kid, you want all the Wi-Fi. Your kid is getting eight hours worth of homework after spending eight hours in school. You have parents complaining to teachers in school like you're giving too much homework because by the time I get home at five, six o'clock and this kid gets home at two, three o'clock, we can't keep up with these assignments. But that's for your kid. Their kid doesn't have any homework. Their kid, when they go on class trips, they bring pieces of paper to write about what exactly occurred. They don't take pictures. No technology. We want you to draw it. Here's some paint. Here's some pencil. Here's some stencil. Enjoy the class trip. That's what's going on in their world. Is it by accident that that $30,000 a year that they're spending on an eight-year-old per year is exactly how much the poor person makes in America? Poverty wages? are at $27,000 plus a year, do you think that's by accident? That the average tuition for these low-tech schools that the ownership class sends their kids to, listening to me, and I'm not saying that the Silicon Valleyers are a part of the ownership class, but their children will be. Their children will be. They'll be there to dictate the price of a microchip. There to, to dictate the price of how much a coder is going to make in Mumbai or in New Mexico or in Manhattan. They're the ones are going to assign val numerical valuations, monetary valuations. They're the ones. So 27,000 a year, 27,000 that you're making per year. 
the ownership class is spending that on tuition for their kids to not have grades, not do any busybody work that they send your they're getting your kids accustomed to busybody work early. So when they graduate from whatever college or whatever, they're doing busybody work for 20 years until the, the boss says, thanks, but no thanks. Your job has been outsourced or deleted. Or we just found somebody to do it cheaper because they're less experienced. And so now less experience becomes more of a commodity than being experienced, being competent, being transparent, being a professional. Now, Karl Marx once said that the history of existing society is the history of class struggles. The history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles. I would like my friends and people here, whether, I, well, whether I'll meet you or, or not, whether we've met or not, I want you to understand that what you're going through now is the history of the world. Whether you're a free man or a slave, a patrician or a plebeian, a lord or a serf, a guild master or journeyman. This is what it is. This is what it is. Karl Marx goes on to say in the Communist Manifesto that the bourgeoisie, which is pretty much another word for the ownership class, the bourgeoisie has stripped the halo off of every occupation honored and looked up to with reverence and awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage laborers. And I would add the teacher. It's reduced everyone to a paid wage laborer. It's very important. It's very important for you to understand. Don't take it personal. He wrote that in 1848. It's 2023. What's changed? Hmm. What's changed? He wrote that in 1848. In 1870, this worker, this labor union activist fighting for the eight-hour workday says we have to put pros- we have to, for our for our society be to be our society be truly true and abiding, you got to put money on one scale and humanity on another. That was 1870. It's 2023. You have people depressed now because of how undervalued they are as wage laborers. People are committing suicide because of that. Are you listening, people? We have to find ways to separate our self-worth for our net worth. This is what it is. This is not going to change. This relationship that we have, that the laborer has with ownership isn't going to change unless you truly want it to change. Unless you as individuals say, you know what, I have to reprioritize what makes sense to me. Because guess what? You weren't taught how to be a business person. You were taught how to be a busy bee. Your school taught you how to memorize, didn't teach you how to think. Your school, your society devalues the intellectual. In the United States, we don't value the intellectual. We value the entrepreneur. We value the business success. That's what we value. 
we value how much you've made monetarily. That's why certain people can just waltz into the White House with no political experience to speak of, but somehow, some way, because they were successful in the quote-unquote business world, making dollars and cents, it makes sense to have them run a country. I've always said politics and business are two separate things. The closer they get, the more fascistic your society gets. As a matter of fact, fascism is the merger between corporate and state interests, by definition. So if you become so enamored with a person because of their business acumen and you think that's the reason why that they're qualified to become president, you in turn, by voting for said person, are endorsing a certain level of quasi-fascism. Yeah, I said it. Fascism is the merger of state and corporate interests. Be careful of what metric you are using, you as the voter. Voters have done this recently putting people in office that have no prior experience in that office. But because they had a corner office in the business world, you think they, be they deserve the oval office in the political world. They've had some successes in the business world, so now that qualifies them or pre-qualifies them to hold the most powerful political seat in all of this known universe. Really? So we've been guilty of that too. This is the world we live in, people. This is the world we live in. I'm going to bring up a couple of things from an article that I read. Very interesting article. As I started thinking about this stuff, as far as value systems, wow, I, I just came across some really great information from this article. I don't remember where this article was from. I just started copying and pasting, and I usually am great at attributing, but at least I'm letting you know I'm not stealing these words. These are not my words. But the, the, something very interesting was brought up, and it said that... um. That in the medieval times, in certain times, post and I'm not post-industrial world in the, po, in the I'm sorry in the pre-industrial world, well-being was not measured in terms of earnings or economic output. Variant. It was not until the mid 19th century in the United States. It was then that American business people and policymakers started to measure progress in dollar amounts, tabulating social welfare based on people's capacity to generate income. Do you understand that it wasn't until the mid-19th century that all these other things that make up a good life was no longer taken into consideration? In fact, the most popular and dominant form of social measurement in the 19th century, as in Europe, were a collection of social indicators known as moral statistics. Listen to this, people. Moral statistics, which quantified such phenomena as prostitution, incarceration, literacy, crime, education, insanity, pauperism, life expectancy, and disease. These moral statistics placed human beings at the center of their calculating vision. Their unit of measure was bodies and minds, never dollars and cents. 
there were certain moral statistics that were being taken into consideration. Now, we can also attest that in the mid-1850s in the United States of America, there was a group of people that were only looked at as dollars and cents, and their minds didn't matter. And those were the African slaves. They were looked at as dollar signs. You are not a full human being. Um, do this job, seven years of hard labor, you die from exhaustion and pain and torture, and we'll find another one of you. Next, devalued as a full human being, just looked at as dollars and cents. So this is important because the culture that we live in now, it values an experience. Right now, a person can get a job that someone who's worked in that field 20, 30 years deserves. But because you're cheaper and you just came out of school, our form of consumer capitalism, who, does it, who is it geared towards? It's geared towards youth culture. And who are the youth? They're the least educated and least experienced among us. And, they're, and, and they have the least, uh, least amount of knowledge as to the value of an actual dollar because they don't work for money. They're given everything. They're given a place to live. They're given food. They're given clothing, they're given shelter, and they're given entertainment. They don't have to pay for anything. Their television, their video games, their sneakers, their, 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 their jeans, their food, their home, the heat in the winter, the cool air in the summer, vacations, the car that they're transported from this activity to that one, their guitar, their piano, their soccer ball, soccer shorts, all given. So when they see something they want, they have emotional responses. Their brains haven't fully been mapped out yet. So everything is an emotional response. So everything is geared towards them. Everything is geared towards them. You understand? So even in our society, we're not respecting prudence, patience, uh, mind and body, just dollars and cents. So create things. You got to have this now. You got to have this now. But six months from now, you don't want it anymore. So it's disposable. So then... Eh, so you have a disposable society that disposes of things, trends, people. All the, here's the new challenge. You got to do this dance and you got to pour hot water on your head, then pour hot honey on, 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 on your feet and then, you know, stomp a honeycomb and see what happens. And that goes on for about 18 hours and then it's gone until the next trend. Disposable. So now people are feeling disposable again. People were disposable to create this country. People are starting to feel disposable. They created unions. So at least the worker could have a voice. Then ownership class said, eh, we don't like the fact that you have a voice. We're going to take your job to someplace else where the people don't have a voice. It's not by accident that many of your most successful corporations have moved their business to places where people don't have the freedom to speak on their own, freedom to exert a certain leverage, freedom to be a three-dimensional human being. It's not by accident that many of your corporations have gone to places that aren't very democratic, that don't share the same political ideals as here, because the more freedom you exercise, the more you realize you deserve more as a person, the more leeway your society gives you to exercise your rights as a free person, as a human being, you realize, oh, wait a minute. So 
yeah, I, I should get more. I should be, I, I, I'm accustomed to speaking up for myself. So when I'm outside picketing or when I'm outside protesting, why can't I do that at the job? And be like, hey, listen, I should get more for this. The, your boss does it all the time. The business section of your employer, of the company you work, or the industry you're in, they do it all the time. They, they enter into ferocious negotiations. Why can't you? Why is it frowned upon when you decide to hold out if you're an NFL player or decide to negotiate and demand a trade if you're in the NBA or if you're a worker and you decide to go on strike? Your employer negotiates ferociously. You, on the other hand, are supposed to timidly accept whatever's given. That's one of the reasons why most of your companies, that you, all the, most of the items that you buy are manufactured by companies that are not in the United States. And they're manufactured in countries where the people don't have much of a say. And if they do speak up, it's with great consequence. For better or for worse, human beings were placed at the center of their calculating vision, this article says. Their unit of measure was bodies and minds, not dollars and cents. It's very, very important. It's very, very important. So when people are wondering why they're being treated this way, this is why. This is why. Everything in your life has to be commodified now. You have... They want you to work nine streams of income. Oh, yeah, you got to hustle. You have to be a hustler. You have to be in the gig economy, work eight hours. Then somehow you have to have another side hustle and a side gig just to live. Really? Why? Who made up these? Lauren Hill had a song on her Unplugged album. And one of the lines was, who made up these rules, I say. Every time I hear that line, chill, chill goes down my arm. Both arms, goosebumps. Who made up these rules, I say? Every time you turn on your television or your, your, your phone and you go on uh, a YouTube or Instagram, everyone is telling you how you have to have 30 streams of income. If that's the case, why didn't you learn that when you were 10 years old? Why didn't you learn that when you were 15? Why didn't you learn that in college? Why are you learning it now that you're in the marketplace realizing that you are undervalued, underappreciated, overworked, and undercompensated? Why are you learning this now? Why have you not learned about the antagonistic relationship between ownership and labor? Why? Why? Why are you giving busy work instead of work to make you think? Why are you in memorization mode? Why haven't you been reading Lucretius and Epicurus? Hmm? Why, St. Thomas Aquinas, why have you not been reading the great thinkers and philosophers? You're, because your job is not to think, your job is to obey and to do the busy work, keeping you permanently underappreciated, undervalued, undercompensated, overworked. Are you... I want people out there to value themselves. Self-worth over net worth. This is very, very important. So I'm reading this article and I'm looking through it now. And it says something here. <clears throat> Where in 1910, an eight pound baby says here, an eight pound baby is worth at birth 362 pounds. That was the New York Times. I'm sorry, $362 a pound. 
declared the New York Times on January 30th, 1910. That is a child's value as a potential wealth producer. If he lives out the normal terms of years, he can produce 2,900 more dollars of wealth than it costs to rear him and maintain him as an adult. The title of the article was What the Baby is Worth as a National Asset. And then it said last year's crop reached a value estimated at $6.9 billion. Last year's crop. That's what they called a human child in 1910 in the New York Times. What the baby is worth as a national asset. <clears throat> just, just, I hope you guys are still with me. I hope the people that were listening to the first half of this are listening. We're going to go on for a little while because I'm speaking to people personally as I do here. There are a lot of topics that I could touch on that could probably get more clicks and more views or whatever the case. Don't know. Or maybe not. This is important and essential. People are dying. People are depressed. People are depleted and feel defeated. Based on how they're being treated in this marketplace, a marketplace that in January 30th, 1910, in the New York Times, the article was what the baby is worth as a national asset last year's crop reached a value estimated at $6.9 billion. Last year's crop. Not the next generation. And what we need, this is what they're worth as a crop. Carrots, beets, potatoes, cotton, crop, human baby. I never thought of human baby as a crop. But... If you're a part of an ownership class that needs people to do the busy bee work, that's exactly what they are. It's chattel. It's cattle. Beasts of burden. So read this. Listen to this part. It says many working class Americans were not as enthusiastic about the rise of economic indicators to measure them. This was largely because they believed the human experience to be priceless. And because they viewed such figures as tools that could be used to justify increased production quotas, more control over workers, or reduced wages. Isn't that what we're going through right now, people? I speak a lot about labor because we are what we do. And we are the amount of time we do it, the amount of time we learn how to do it, the amount of time and money we invest in how to learn how to do something and then do it and do it correctly and do it to the best of our ability. We are that. We are what we put into our work. We are that. That's who we are. It's not the work itself. I don't care if you're a janitor. I don't care if you're I don't care what it, I don't care. But you are the quality of the work that you do it. At the very least, you're that. That's why I say to people, no matter the job I've had, I've done excellent work. I've worked in janitorial services. I've worked in the food service industry. I've worked in the hospitality industry. I've worked in business. And every one of my employers can say, yeah, June, yeah, great worker. Not just a great worker. I added to the culture of the place. I set an example as a leader. I've never met a boss that was better than me as an employee. I never got a benevolent boss, a Yoda, or someone who, who embodied best practices that I wanted to emulate. I was 
90% of the jobs, I'm sorry, 99% of the jobs I've been in, I've been the better boss. As an entry-level employee or a mid-level employee, I was the better boss. That's the reason why now one can't hire me. I'm unhirable right now. And when I say boss, very, very seldom have I worked with the owner. On certain occasions, I've, been, I've had the privilege to work with ownership. But I, at this point in my life, cannot work under rungs and rungs and rungs of superiors where there's a manager, regional manager, executive manager, vice president, senior vice president, CEO owner. I can't work under all of that. I have to work next to the person with the power of the pen. I can only be one or two degrees of separation from that person. And the ownership, I have to have access. Albeit limited, I need access. Boss to boss. That's where I am. So I can't work for you. I can work with you. If you're the boss, you know, I would rather work for a moving company where the boss is holding on to one side of the couch and I'm holding on to the other than to work for a multi, a multinational Fortune 500 company as a mid-level employee. They could keep that where I got to deal with supervisor this and that in different departments and HR. And for one thing, for, then I need a requisition report request to be sent to HR before I can turn on a light switch in the, in, in, in the lunchroom. Stop it. That's just me. Understanding my value in the marketplace saying, I got to do things different. Got to do it myself. This is very, very important. So, here we have um, a Frederick Winslow Taylor, an efficiency expert in 1911, who dreamed of measuring every human movement in terms of cost to its employers. Bluntly articulated, this reversal of ends and means, in the past, the man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. Excuse me. Frederick Win Winslow Taylor. In the past... Man has been first in the future. The system must be first. That's where you are right now. That's where you are right now. System is first. System's been first. But here you are. Here you are in 2023. If you're depressed, if you're feeling angst, if you're feeling that because your net worth has been diminished, you had no control over how much money you could make. Remember that those numbers were posted already. It was, oh, if I go to school for this, they're going to pay me that. And this is how much my school costs. This is how much time it's going to take. And you did the requisite math and said, OK, I'm going to enter into that field. OK, you knew ahead of time how much they were going to pay. But maybe you didn't know what the cost of living was. You looked at that starting salary and said, "Ooh, 55. That's nice. 62 starting. That's cool. Oh, but the area. To live within 30 minutes of that 62000 you'd be earning, guess what? More than half of that salary is going to go to rent to just live in a decent neighborhood. Not affluent, not upper middle, not anything. Oh, wait a minute, that 62 on paper seems nice, but how much do I get after taxes? And what's the cost of living in the area within 30 minutes of this, this place? Oh, within 15, 20 square miles? Oh, oh, I can't, oh, no, that doesn't work. You didn't do that. You didn't do that because what areas are actually paying that 62? Oh, what areas are paying 48? Oh, what area? Oh, how much do you get? Oh, we didn't do the math. No one taught you how to do that math. No one told you how to look at that math. 
You looked at the starting salary, you borrowed the money, you went to school, you got the money, you started working and you realized, Jesus Christ, this ain't enough. This, 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 this isn't it. Oh man, I, I can't afford a regular car. I can't, I'm working my behind off. I went to seven, seven years of school. This is what I did. This is the reason why I didn't become a teacher. A head of a particular department, one of my former professors is now head of a, a department. And she wanted me to speak on behalf of, I guess, men who are identified as African-American in America. I'm identified as such. Didn't say I identify. I'm identified as black in America. And those who are identified as that do not enter into the teaching profession. Black men or men who are identified as black do not become teachers. They're the least represented, I think, in the in the teaching ranks, public school, elementary school and high school. And she wanted me to speak on that. She asked me, well, June, I know that you've enjoyed teaching and I meet her and I discussed that I've taught before and I enjoyed it. She said, why are you, you won't become a teacher? I said, because I can't afford the car I want to drive. I can't afford the lifestyle I want to live on a teacher's salary. It's just that simple. And I said, teaching does not put me in a position to live um, um, above the cost of living the way I'd want to. I don't need to be a millionaire. I don't need to live a millionaire lifestyle, whatever that means, because I know many, many millionaires who drive Priuses and live in very modest homes, but yet they have million-dollar net worths. So when you say millionaire lifestyle, you have to be very careful. I said, I want to live a comfortable life. The life, what I consider comfort, based on what I bring to the table, teaching can't deliver that to me. Based on the amount of time it takes to become a teacher and then the amount of time it takes to teach, I have to teach for eight hours, then bring that work home. I, I know too much about how much my time is worth to enter into that profession. You can't be a head of household and be a teacher and just teach and then decide that you're going to marry a woman. Then you're going to decide that you're going to have children and be able to provide a life for them. I can't do that on teacher salaries. And when I did the information, you know, the shutdown, um, this, this was occurring right before the shutdown. I was going to do a presentation because um, she asked me to speak, you know, to, to chairmen of various departments. And I was going to do so. And I was doing the, the preliminary research and I found out my reason for not going into the teaching profession were many men's reason for not going into the teaching profession because you can do an apprenticeship as a plumber in 18 months and make more than a teacher. You can go to mechanic school and work for Audi or Mercedes and make more than a teacher in two years as opposed to six to seven years of formal education. That's not given to you for free, by the way. You borrow money to go to school plus interest. So I have to get a bachelor's degree. Then I have to get a master's in education specifically for two to three years because a master's in education is two to three years. And then I start working seven years of school. From from the age of 18 to about 24, 25 years old. When this this person can leave school at eight, can graduate high school at 18, go to culinary school for a couple of years and make that same money or go become an HVAC technician and make that same money. Learn how to clean carpets and roll mold remediation, get a used F-150 truck or an E-Coline van, 
put a little sticker on the side with their phone number on it and a funky little logo and make that same money. That's why I'm not a teacher, because the dollars didn't make sense. So I couldn't be mad if I decided to get into teaching and I'm underpaid and underappreciated and overworked. Because I already knew going in, I was kissing this job with my eyes wide open. I knew what it was. They don't teach you that. I was like, there's a certain lifestyle. There's a certain car I want to be able to drive. There are certain cars I want to afford, but I don't necessarily want to buy. It was like, oh, I want to drive that or I want to live there if I want to, but I'll scale down. I want to drive that if I want to, but I don't need that. I want to be able to shop here if I want to, but I don't have to. I want, and all that saying is I want to have a certain amount of cushion as far away from the cost, the aggregate national cost of living as possible. They don't teach you that. They teach you busybody. How to be a busybody. You get a degree in being a busy bee. That's what they teach you. And in turn, you become depressed when you realize, whoa, I'm overstressed, underpaid, overworked, underappreciated. You can't take a day off consecutively. All of a sudden, my vacation days, etc. All of these things. So they're not valuing you, valuing you. You have to find ways to value yourself. You have to find ways to value your gifts. If you want to commodify your gifts and put a barcode on your gifts, do so. If you just want to do things that are fulfilling to you, then do so. You're going to have to learn how to scale down, people, because I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something that's very interesting. You see all this work from home stuff? It's awesome, right? We've spoken about, spoken about it at length. That you people that are working from home get to know thy neighbor. Get to create a village so you can create different economies. You want to create different economies and different streams of income? Speak to thy neighbor. What are solutions that you can bring to the table to benefit the people around you? Because guess what's going to happen with all of this work from home stuff? You want to know a side effect from all of this? I love the whole idea of working from home. You get to be with your pets, get to be with your kids, get to be with yourself. You get to do jumping jacks on your breaks, do a little 10, 15 minute yoga. You don't have to get super dressed up. You don't have to commute. So your carbon footprint, you know, with all of these environmentalists out there screaming about electric cars, they should be screaming for first and foremost, public transportation everywhere. A hundred people in a train car should be replacing a hundred cars on the road. That's one. And two, they should be the number one people pushing for work from home and hybrid work. But here's going to be the side effect to that. If everyone can do the work from home, then that means I don't have to pay you a New York salary because you're now you're no longer in New York. So if you're a New Yorker and you're getting paid a certain amount of money, to work from home, they're paying you commensurate to the New York cost of living. So if you take that money and you decide to move to, I don't know, Arkansas, because you're working from home, right? Are they at that point, your job mandated to pay you the New York cost of living now that you're living two, three, four states away in Arkansas? Hmm? You're no longer in the empire state. You're now in the natural state. Do I have to pay you that? Or if you decide to go to Oklahoma or maybe New Mexico, hanging out, looking at the petroglyphs and chilling, 
smoking on that recreational off a New Mexico cost of living as opposed to a New York State cost of living? Better yet, what if they say, you know what? People are asking for four-day work weeks, five-hour work days, hybrid. They don't want to come into the office. Why don't I, as a company, train people to speak English proficiently in Southeast Asia or other countries that are already taking over our customer service industry. When you call a customer service line, many times it's not someone from here. It's in the Philippines, it's in Malaysia, it's in many, many other places, correct? Guess what? Those people speak English at an above average level. You teach them, and now they're going to work five days a week. They're going to work eight, nine hours a day. And they're going to work for $20,000 a year while you're making 65, 70, 80, 90,000 a year. That's going to happen within the next five years to 10 years. That's going to be the new conversation. How work from home came back and bit the hybrid worker on the tukis. The work from homer, the digital nomad, bit them on the tukis. Because now you're in Romania, you're in Croatia, you're doing this. That's awesome. But what if your employer decides, you know what, I'm not paying you to do this anymore because what you have over many others is just proficiency of the language. Many people, many countries in the third world have caught up technologically as far as instruction. In India, they've caught up. In certain parts of Southeast Asia, they've caught up technologically. There are many of those STEM schools teach the very things that the ownership class find valuable. So why are they going to pay you 70000 just because you speak English? A lot of places speak English. English may be your native language. So what? They don't need you to speak English. They need you to speak busy work. Do this work. Can you, can you finish? Can you complete this task competently? Complete it in its entirety. Okay, I'm going to pay you uh, one-fifth of what I was paying the American employee. That's coming. So you know what that is? This little This time away from the office in that artificial environment where you are around people that you didn't choose to be your friends or family, your coworker, which I consider to be the cheapest, uh, the, the lowest form of, um, of, of camaraderie or relationships is coworkers. 90% of the coworkers that you've worked with in your life, you don't speak to them, you don't know them. It's that simple. It's just not that, that type of relationship. You'll speak to college students. If you were in a fraternity or a sorority, if you were in school, you're going to know more of your teachers and students than you're going to know co coworkers. That's facts. Coworkers, when you're gone, that's it. Out of sight, out of mind. That's how it works for the most part. So I don't put a great deal of emphasis on. Co I build great professional relationships that that could turn into friendships if we if our, if our values are aligned. But I know my job is to come in and be a professional. It's like I work for, a, it's like I'm a quarterback. I come in and I give my all to that team. I, I play for the Giants. But if you trade me to the Dolphins, whatever I gave to you, sorry, maybe we can speak on the phone from time to time. But now my job is to be the QB of these Dolphins. It's that simple. But this is very, very important. I keep saying that over and over again because I'm thinking of people in my mind thinking of actual individuals who don't understand what Frederick, that didn't know what Frederick Winslow Taylor said in 1911 when he wanted to what? Measure every human movement in terms of its cost to employers. That's where you are in the United States in 2023. 
What are you as a cost to your employers? That's how they want you to feel. That's not who you are. It's the reason why there's no arts programs in the schools anymore. There aren't any music programs. They take out the music. They take out the art. They take out the sports. And all of a sudden, you're left with just busy body instruction from 8 to 2 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Are you kidding me? So a kid doesn't get to you. Let me tell you something. Very few things teach kids about life, teach kids life lessons more effectively than learning a sport, especially a team sport. You learn certain coping mechanisms playing a team sport that will benefit you for the entirety of your days on this planet. The motor skills that you learn from playing a musical instrument, the nonverbal reasoning, enhanced communication with your left and right hemispheres in your brain. All of these things you get from music, you get from liberal arts, arts and, 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 and value systems that based on Frederick Williams, who wants to be able to measure every single thing at the cost to employers, that music may be considered a cost or an expense as opposed to an investment. You're looked at as an expense right now instead of an investment. Musical talent, being able to uh, sing or learn an instrument. You don't have to learn it well. You don't have to be Eric Clapton on the guitar or Beethoven. It's not what we're saying. We're saying just the mere, just the mere fact that you've learned how to play. Not necessarily proficiently, but the mere learning and the acquisition of that knowledge and what it changes, literally changes your mind. And the school system in this country said, eh, eh, it's not important. It's not going to teach you how to be a better busy bee. It's not. You're right. It may not. I may be a better human being. I may be more well-rounded and, and in turn, Somehow, in a roundabout way, it, make, it can make me a better employee. It's going to make me a better thinker. I'll be able to use when you learn a language at an early age, like I learned. Learned languages, it changes how you look at the world when you learn different languages early and, you expo and you're exposed to it. How you look at culture, how you view and deem culture and judge it and which ratios you use is vastly different if you've been exposed to multilingualism at an early age. And, me, and for me, it was since I was born. So I look at the world differently. I look at foreign countries, not very foreign. I look at almost every place quite familiar. I have a familiarity with, with tones and sights and smells that are different from, you know, my home different languages i pick it up I, it's not it's it's not something to be avoided it's not an obstacle it's not a challenge it's like oh wait they speak a different language there's a problem here no there's not we'll figure that out we'll figure that out my heart doesn't race because i'm in a place where i don't speak another where i don't speak the language it doesn't happen so multilingualism taken out of your schools arts taken out of your schools uh, uh, sports taken out of your schools, coping mechanisms, learning how to negotiate, learning how to cope with failure, learning how to cope with success, knowing how to channel frustrations. All of these things taken out of your schools. You're left and replaced with busybody work so you can turn your little busybodies into grown-up busybodies who become depressed and oppressed and repressed and suppressed and are mad about their salaries and didn't know from the beginning that they were going to be measured strictly by what kind of expense they were to the employer. 
that's where we are. I want people to understand that now more than ever, we have an opportunity, you have an opportunity to, to, to build your own ship. Online now, you can have a hobby that you can actually commodify if you choose. You can choose right now to say, you know what? I don't want to sell any of these things that I'm actually creating, but I want to teach you guys how to do it. I'm going to give you a perfect example. <clears throat> My mother's a retiree, and I, I subscribe to a, a community forum that's in her neighborhood because I don't live near her at all. And um, I just want to be abreast of things going on in her community, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, whether it's her association, whether if there's any suspicious characters out there or anything, I can alert family members and go, hey, listen, there's some things that may be. But in any case, I like to keep abreast and, and just the tenor and, and figure out what's going on. So many, many residents, elderly residents or senior citizens, and uh, uh, they communicate. And there's this one woman who um, she knits and she knits welcome mats she knits different things, gloves, mittens, things like that. She's very proficient. It's actually very good work. And um, many residents chime in and comment about how beautiful the work is. And they say, oh, you can sell that. You can start a store. You should get a domain name. You should do this. You should do that. You, I would buy that. That looks bad. And she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, it was like a couple of years ago. She said, um, I've worked for 30 years. Um, I'm retired. And this is my fun. I give these out as gifts to my kids and my grandkids. Or if people like them, first come, first serve. Um, I don't want, I, it would change the way I feel about this if I were to start selling it. In our society where the only measurement, or the predominant measurement is dollars and cents and not mind and body, what she was saying was counter to the prevailing or predominant narrative. She said it would change the way she felt about this if she sold it. She would rather give it away. Whoa. Gifts are priceless, people. You're a gift. You're priceless. The world is going to try to find a way to put a price on you. That's not the actual price. That's not your actual price. That's the market. That's the market looking to suppress, suppress and repress your actual value so others can profit. A millionaire turns into a millionaire by underpaying its employees in this world. It's not just innovation. It's not innovation. It's saying, okay, I'm going to pay you this because this is how much I can afford to pay you, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Okay. When you see these billionaires and then you all of a sudden you look at their companies and you see what's going on on the ground floor of their companies and what people are actually getting paid. The largest growing number, one of the largest, fastest rising numbers of homeless people in America are the working homeless. And that was pre shutdown. That was pre 2020. It was women with children. I think that was one of the fastest. Obviously, veterans, which is unfortunate. The people who've given the most get the least. You know, you're jumping out of a plane and you're into foreign territory and you come back and no one wants to hire you and et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a little crazy. But in any case, one of the fastest growing segments of the homeless society is a homeless community is what? People who actually work 40 hours a week, actually work 
formal jobs, who get, who, who get taxes taken out. People are working, living in their cars, washing their clothes at laundromats, sleeping in laundromat parking lots, having that little iron in the trunk, ironing their clothes or their uniform, and they get to work every day. And somehow they live in a world that can't afford to house these people that work 40 hours. Because, but yet the companies they work for are oftentimes, this is, these are not informal workers. These are not undocumented workers. These are not felons. These are not people that are working in informal industries. They're working for Fortune 500 companies. They're working for multinational companies. Not an offshoot or an off-brand. The company. Companies that file W-2s and W-4s. You understand what I'm saying? And they're living under bridges. But that's how the company made its money. By underpaying and undervaluing you. And we signed the covenant to be underpaid and undervalued. It's important that we start kissing this, kissing our society with, with our eyes open. Just looking at it, looking at it, everything, what it's doing while we're, this is, this is not a betrayal. This is what it is. Remember that old saying that I, I used? You get the rights you fight for. You don't get the ones you don't. You get the things you fight for. That's what you get in this world. You get what you fight for. You get the life you fight for. So you don't just get the rights you fight for. You get the life you fight for. You do not get the life you deserve. It's a fight for a knife in the mud. If I may quote the great Logan Roy from the, from the show Succession. You fight, it's a fight for a knife in the mud. That's what this is. You see the end. You are broken down and dissected and you are measured by dollars and cents, not your mind and your body and your spirit. I remember when Barack Obama had a speech one time that I dislike. I have great disdain for this speech. It's far beyond dislike where he said he, he made fun and poked holes into the uh, liberal arts degree. And if anyone is, is unfamiliar with what a liberal arts degree is, it's when you go to school, you go to college or university and you do a survey of different uh, 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 learning, a survey. You, do so, you take a sociology class, an anthropology class, a history class, a business class, maybe a, a physics class. A, you, you, study the Greek, you study the classics, and you're learning how to think. Dif every class is different. It doesn't go towards a specific vocation. You understand? Very, very important, liberal arts learning. Some of the greatest thinkers in the history of this world were liberal arts majors. Their liberal arts training was given to them in their teens. What we consider a bachelor's in liberal arts and philosophy, they were learning at 16, 17 years old. They were getting their master's degrees at 19, 20, and their bachelor's at 18. This is important. Because even our college system in this 1.5 hours of instruction per class, per day, per week is nonsense. You take two classes, a day, two classes a week, you know, three hours a week for a couple of months, and then you, you get an A. An A in what? What did you learn? Truthfully. Truthfully. So this is important because we're not taught that. So our liberal arts degree is what gave birth to so many streams of consciousness and streams of thought. Our economics, our philosophies, our laws, 
our innovations mostly came out of liberal arts education. So Barack is saying, oh, no, you know, you got to get into the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. What about the people that are not scientifically inclined? Okay? Or technologically inclined or engineer or mathematically inclined, but they're gifted. How do we quantify their gifts? How do we quantify the sculptor, the artisanal, the speaker, the poet, the philosopher, other people who have a myriad of talents, but the system that's looking for you to just be an input to plug you in and be like, okay, we're going to value you for what you do here. How many times can you do this per minute, per hour, per day? In that world, we have devalued thinking, thought. That's what we've done. Where a teacher can make forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and I go and I'm watching sports television, and not the athletes, but the people speaking about the athletes are making two, three million dollars a year. There's an imbalance. I think certain people out there may be a. I have a couple of friends of mine that are in the sports world that took umbrage to a certain degree when I said that. I was like, I don't think the people that talk about sports deserve the money that they're getting in valuation terms or based on their service to society. It's not an exact proportion. If, if I were to judge what a teacher does, I think that they should at least be making upper six figures. I don't think that someone speaking about a sport that they've never played should get seven figures or more. Just saying valued for their contribution to society. But it all depends. This is not me controlling this valuation. It's an ownership class that controls the valuation. And so that's why people sit home and go, I can't believe such and such is getting so much money. I can't believe LeBron is getting so much money to dunk a basketball and do this and a third. Yeah, well, you know, he brings in millions of people in to watch, to buy, to buy $10 sodas and $30 popcorns and pay $15 for parking and go to sports bars where waitresses and servers getting paid and busboys. It's a whole industry around them. I understand that valuation. I get it. When a teacher is in a room with 30 young minds that, that he or she can make or break, and you decide to underpay and undervalue that person, that person goes home and feels devalued. We have a problem, but that problem has always existed. It's existed all over the world. It's a global suppression of the wage because certain countries that revere thinking more than this country, that revere education more than this country, I've noticed that their wages have been suppressed as far as educators and medical professionals. So this is not just happening here. In other places that I feel respect intellect and thinking more than this country does even in those places i've seen the wage sort of at an average commensurate level to what the american worker is getting as if they've all decided there was a meeting that you weren't invited to it was a lunch that you were not invited to where they decided this is how much we're going to pay you whether you're here or in another hemisphere it's where we are, people. Your net worth is not your self-worth. It's time now <clears throat> for us to have another conversation about how we are going to value ourselves in a world that is increasingly becoming automated, where artificial intelligence will soon be taking over your jobs, 
but yet you have an opportunity to use a lot of this intelligence, whether it's your devices, whether it's the opportunities that these devices afford you with different money-making opportunities to maybe free yourself from the busybody world, from the world where you're waiting, where you're concerning yourself with one singular employee, employer valuing you. I'm not saying to go out there and be the side gig, side gig king or queen where you're just out there hustling all day long. Where, yeah, I got the credit card business and I got the, 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 the moving business. I got the T-shirt. But listen, I want people to do more reading, more thinking, more listening to thoughtful, long form conversation than they are just trying to look to turn everything into a buck. But you got to eat. Right. You got to live. But you have to ask yourself, who's controlling the methods of inflation and deflation? Recession, inflation, one minute your house is worth 200, one minute you're like, oh, I'm on the market, I can afford this house. How much is this? 180? Hmm, I can get that. Then next week that house is 325. What are we talking about here? And everyone's telling you that the economic indicators are indicating that this indicate. Stop it. Syndication, the in enough is enough. Like I said to many people, I was speaking to a friend of mine. I was saying there's going to have to be multiple credit reports now, multiple, I'm sorry, multiple tenants in these single family homes. People are going to have to learn to live together. You're not going to be able to make the money off one particular salary to afford the house and the car and, and the mortgage and the picket fence. It's not what's going on in this country. The price of education is too high. You can barely afford to get paid per year what you borrowed per year to educate yourself in what you're looking to get paid in. Schools are 40,000 and these, and these employers don't want to even pay you that. Schools are 20, 30, 40,000 per year. These homes are five, six times your salary. So you are leveraged and borrowing to the hilt. So we have to start rethinking things. We're going to have a conversation as to how. But this was just laying down a foundation of, of future conversations that we're going to be having in 2023 and beyond. Because like I said before, things are going to change. This, this work from home, oh, it's nice now. It's cool. It's cute. Until the employers decide to teach people in third world countries how to do your job. Because the one thing you have over them in this country is English. You speak the language. But they're already in customer service departments. I know paralegals working right now in Asia. Law firms that are hiring paralegals to do the job that paralegals in this country are getting paid $75,000 to do, they're getting paid $25,000 to do in certain parts. Same work. Encrypted paperwork gets sent in the evening. It's 6 p.m. here. It's 6 a.m. there. By the time the lawyers get into the office in the morning, paperwork's already done. Sent to them via encrypted file. Boom. Lawyer, head of law firm, partner in law firm fast asleep while it's 6 p.m. here it's 6 7 8 a.m. there sent them all the paperwork give them a couple of instructions call me in the morning this is what's going on people paralegals working 10 12 hour shifts in asia looking at your paperwork here if, you, if you're a client of a law firm that's where your law firm is sending their paperwork they have no american paralegals these are some of the biggest most successful and oldest law firms in the United States are doing this today. That's been happening for years. This is pre-2020. 
If it's happening in, at, at that level, it's going to happen at your level. So in the meantime, what are you going to be doing? How are you going to value what it is that you are? What is it, what is it, what it is that you do? Value yourself, your inherent and innate gifts that the system hasn't seen fit to commodify. They can't put a valuation on it, maybe because it's priceless. Maybe it's up to you to say, I'm willing to give this away. I'm willing to lease it. I'm willing to sell it to you, whatever the case it is, whatever. We'll talk about it later. Thank you guys for tuning in. Until next time.